Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 217 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, there's nothing like going back to the very beginning. Uh, and uh, those of you who've been around for a while know that episode number one, my guest was Andy Stanley, and he's back. He's got a brand new book called Irresistible. It's all about reclaiming the original Christian faith. I think you're going to find this conversation fascinating. Andy was extremely generous with his time, and we do a deep dive, not into just the message of his new book, but also talking about how he's responded to the critics and uh, some other personal aspects of leadership. I think you're going to love this episode. And uh, make sure you check out his new book. In fact, we've got something kind of cool for you that we're going to tell you about at the end. So Andy talks about chapters that got deleted from the book just for length. Uh, and we'll show you at the end of the podcast how you can actually get your hands on one. So that's always kind of fun. I, I don't know about you, but when I watch a movie, I love the deleted scenes almost as much as the ones they kept in. So uh, hang on to the end of the podcast. We'll show you how to get that. And in the meantime, thank you to everybody who made uh, the recent release of my book, Didn't See It Coming, uh, just far more than we ever dreamed or imagined. I mean, all three top spots in Christian leadership for much of September, uh, most wished for book, most gifted book, uh, top three new releases. Why, why like top three for one book? Audiobook, <laughs> hardcover, and Kindle. You guys have crushed it. Now, if you haven't got your hands on Didn't See It Coming yet, hang on because we've got a contest that we kind of threw into the mix for this week. So if you haven't picked up a copy uh, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go out and get a copy. And if you post it to social, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter this week with the hashtag didn't see it coming book, just didn't see it coming book, make sure you hashtag it. Uh, we will randomly draw 10 winners for a $25 Starbucks gift card. So basically the book's free. So what we need you to do, we want you to go to an old school bricks and mortar store to pick up the book, okay? So like Barnes and Noble or that kind of thing. Take a picture with you um, and the book at the bookstore and then hashtag it, didn't see it coming book. We'll randomly draw 10 winners. You'll get $25 worth of Starbucks uh, if you win. And we're pretty pumped for that. Uh, next week, we have another contest coming up. That's for all of you who have already bought. So uh, this can be a lot of fun. Okay, so if you haven't bought the book, go out this week between September 18th and 24th. Uh, take a picture of you buying the book, like holding the book in the bookstore with the hashtag didn't see it coming book. And you will uh, perhaps be one of 10 people who get a really nice Starbucks gift card. Hey, um, Got a couple of things I want to tell you about too before we jump into the conversation with Andy. Uh, a lot of you have been using Trained Up and some of you have been, you know what, I, I really have to figure out a new way to train people at our church. That's what trainedup.church is all about. It puts your training online. Well, there's a couple of brand new things that they're introducing. First of all, the money back guarantee is now on for 90 days for all new customers. So that will give you three full months to try out and use the product completely risk-free. And one of the things I love about Trained Up is it works for 
churches that are small and like, I don't have time to record videos, but we got to get everybody trained. Boom. Like within one minute, you can be training your volunteers once you've signed up because they've got hundreds of pre-built video courses ready to go. Um, But if you lead a church like say, oh, North Point or something like that, and you're like, no, we do everything custom, you can do everything custom too. All right. They've got a free demo. They'll walk you through. It takes about 15 minutes. Here's a second change that they've done. They now have free coaching and support to every customer, not just those on certain price plans. Okay. So free coaching, free support, 90 day money back guarantee. Oh, and they're going to throw in 10% off for life because you listen to this podcast. So head on over to trainedup.church and on checkout, use the coupon code CARRY, you will get 10% off for life. So just enter C-A-R-E-Y and you've got that discount. So head on over and check out trainedup.church today. Well, I'm very excited to have this conversation with Andy Stanley. He's written a fabulous new book called Irresistible. I hope you get your hands on it. Happy launch day, Andy. And here is my conversation with Andy Stanley. Well, Andy, welcome back to the podcast. You helped us get this thing started. Thank you. I know. And you have been so extraordinarily successful. And it's because other than me, you've had great guests. You have great content. You have you have great content and insight, Carrie. And you've added so much to, you know, the leadership conversation, not just within the faith community, but in all the communities. So way to go and congratulations on your success. Well, I don't know. It would have been the same journey without you on about mm. 50 levels. So thank you, Andy. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I know how busy you are and you're going to help a lot of us today. So I want to focus a lot of our time today on your book, which comes out, actually, if if this all goes the way it's planned, it'll be the day of release that this episode oh, wow. airs. So yep. um, it's launch day, theoretically, in uh, Irresistible World. Brand new book. You've spent, I think, you know, how long did it take you to write this? Because it's not, it's not a light book. Uh, a couple of years. Uh, yeah. A couple of years of actually working on it. Then, of course, some years before that thought put into this. Um, and you know me, and and you know seven or eight, maybe actually about nine years ago, I made some changes in my communication style, and so um, I thought it was time to talk about it and talk about it to a broader audience than just church leaders. So I, I really think about the audience of this book being thoughtful Christians, whether they're church leaders or leaders who just love the local church, but just thoughtful Christians as we think about our culture, the changes that have taken place, and our new opportunities. So. Yeah, and you know, it's it's definitely got a point of view and we're going to dig into that. Can you tell me um why you decided to write it? Because it's very different than Deep and Wide. Deep and Wide is yep. about how to do church. This is really about our faith. Yeah. Yeah, about well, after 9/11, um the they're known as the New Atheists came out and wrote all their books about uh you know, religion that religion is dangerous. And Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins in particular and the late Christopher Hitchens um yeah. Um, became rock stars on university campuses. And it's not that everybody has read their books, but their ideas, which are not necessarily new ideas, they got new life. And um, as I was listening, it was probably probably nine or 10 years ago, I was listening, I think it was Sam Harris, but it, to be honest, I can't remember. Um, but these are the kinds of things he talks about frequently. Um, this particular um, speaker was at a university campus and was dismantling the Bible. I mean, just ripping it apart. And the crowd went wild. And as I sat there listening, I thought, you know, this is so unfortunate because this author, this speaker, along with the new atheist and people who are skeptical, um, share an assumption with Christians, with committed Christians, that is not true. And the assumption is 
that as go, as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. Or another way of saying that is that the that the foundation of our faith is a text. The foundation of our faith is a Bible. Well, that has never actually been the case. But because of the way we're presented with our Bibles as children, and because of the way that pastors and preachers preach and teach and leverage the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and because of the Reformation and Sola Scriptura, um, we have become, we have been drawn away from the actual foundation of our faith. So as I listened, I thought, you know, the fatal flaw in our faith is that we have a bit of a straw man faith that we don't know is a strong man. And it makes, you know, Christianity a big, fat, rich target um, for people. And my concern, and you know me, Carrie, my concern isn't me and you, or even probably most of the people listening to your podcast. My concern is the next generation. So I decided, you know what, I want to talk about this. I want to bring some old things back to life. Um, I want to reach back into some things I was taught 30 something years ago that have served as the framework for my preaching and teaching. But I think for many people, this is new stuff, even though it's old stuff. And so I wrote this book. So it, it really is for thoughtful Christians who are concerned about their children, their grandchildren, and the next generation. When you think about Sam Harris and Dawkins and Hitchens and, and people like that, um, what do you think some of their stronger points are? Because I know you well enough to know you don't like yeah. straw man in an argument. Mm-hmm. So if you're no. if you're skeptical, what is resonating with the skeptic? And they're like, Hitchens is right. Christians are wrong. Well, there's uh, for the most part they're scientists and yeah. science. And there, in my mind, there's no conflict between science and religion. Science, we just figure out how God made the world, how God created the world, and how God makes the world work. Um, I think it's Rodney Stark, actually, anthropologist um, and um, theologian, who I think is the first person I've heard say, whenever science stumbles upon something new, Christians should say, "Oh, that's how he did it." Yeah. So. I, I just reject this, you know, is science or religion. So, but unfortunately for so many Christians, um, when so, science is, is the enemy, well, it can't be the enemy. History is not the enemy. Archaeology isn't the enemy. So their strong points are, I think they um, shine an appropriate light on some of the um, not so thoughtful <laughs> parts of our theology and our not so thoughtful approaches. I love this Sam Harris quote. I use it all the time. He said, we should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. And that's absolutely true. And Christians should not be afraid to do that. And Christians should be the most curious people in the world. But unfortunately, we get defensive so quickly. And um, that's unfortunate. We st- you stop learning when you become defensive. You've heard me say we need to be students, not critics, or be a student first before we're critics. So I think they have brought up some, some, um, some great points and, again, have forced us to rethink um, not just what we believe, but going back to the book, Irresistible, what they have done, I think, where they've done us a favor, perhaps, is they are forcing us to reconsider what really is the foundation of our faith. Is it really an inerrant book? Um, is it really a six-day creation? Um, is it really a lot of the things that, you know, we've staked our, you know, put our stake in the ground? Or is it something different? And in Irresistible, I argue it's something different, that Christianity began with an event, the resurrection. And that is the stake we keep in the ground. And, you know, we can talk about that. So that's, yeah, yeah so you're exactly right. We, we should never discount those individuals or their books. And I've tried to read all of their books. So 
Now, um, it was fun reading Irresistible this summer, getting ready for this interview and seeing what you've written in that. Because as somebody who follows, you know, we're a partner church at Connexus, et cetera, et cetera. But I've watched you teach for years. And it was like, oh, all those threads, you know, I could, I could hear all the series and all those things yep. you dropped like five years ago, eight years ago, three years ago, Aftermath, for example. And so many of the series, brand new. Um, the End Commandments, all wow, those series. You, 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 you were paying attention. <laughs> I'm in the front row a lot, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm in the front row a lot. We've heard a few. And I'm like, okay, now I see that this is a much bigger argument that you have been mm. pulling from. And you added a lot to it. Like it wasn't yep. all in the series. You I, added I filled a lot in some to gaps. Yeah. You did. Can, for those, obviously it's release day. They're not going to have read the book. Can you just give us the bird's eye view of the basic argument in Irresistible? Yeah, the, the bird's eye view is I am trying to help Christians think sequentially rather than theologically. And most of us, because of how we were handed the Bible, because we all grew up in some sort of theological system if we grew up in church, um, we think theologically. And I'm saying let's step back and let's experience this sequentially. And when we do, we recognize that the foundation of our faith is not a book, um, the Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. So sequentially, it's Jesus first, and then a resurrection, eyewitnesses to a resurrection who documented that event in the life of Jesus. Those documents were eventually collected, and really not until the middle of the fourth century, 350 years after the resurrection, do we find the first, the Bible. And by the Bible, I don't mean scripture. I mean the Jewish scripture and these New Testament documents bound together. And from that point forward, that became not only authoritative, it was confused as being the foundation or the way that Christianity got started. So I'm trying to make, I want the original version of our faith back in the forefront, because that original version really was irresistible. And in the book, I talk about the difference and the extraordinary progress. A handful of uneducated, probably illiterate Jesus followers made, and they're sandwiched between the temple and the Roman Empire, both committed to squashing this movement. And today, think about it, Gary, today, Jerusalem is full of Christian tourists, and Rome is full of crosses representing a single crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus. So the question that must be asked is not what was written. The question that has to be asked is what happened. And Christians have a compelling, compelling story, a compelling narrative, and I'm afraid it's gotten lost. And I want to bring it back to the surface for the sake of a generation of Christians who now, and you know, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Think about this too, Kerry. You know, when you and I grew up, if we wanted to know what was in the Bible, we actually had to go find one, open it, and read it. Nowadays, a person can find out what else is in the Bible without owning one, without touching one, without reading one. They just, a few clicks on the computer, and they can find all the misinformation about the Scripture, and they can find what else is in the Bible other than what their pastor told them on Sunday. So for us not to shift our approach is foolish, and the good news is, we have a better story than that, but we're going to have to step away from theology, back a little bit into history, and back into the event that launched this thing, which was the resurrection. Hmm. So really, in, in that sense, you're going back to pre-third century, fourth century, when the scriptures were canonized and going, what no, was yeah. that? And we need to go yeah. back to that. 
Yeah. You didn't. Uh, you you share some of the story in the book, and I know there have been some changes from the final version that's coming out um, with Zondervan. But like, this has been a process for you. You didn't. You didn't have this approach when you were twenty five or thirty. So, do you want to walk us through yeah. how you got here? How did you get here? Well. Um, I don't, I don't tell this story in the book. I wish I had, but I really, I cut about 120 pages out of this book. <laughs> it was becoming a, um, a series. Um, I was brought up like most evangelical Christians, given my Bible, you know, Bible was given to me as a child. I believed it. I believed it because an adult told me to believe it. Right. right. Um, the, the adult who told me to believe it may not have even read the whole thing, who knows, but they told me it was all true. And somebody told them it was all true. So, and there's no problem with that. I, I raised my kids somewhat the same way. <laughs> So consequently, I had a very devotional approach to the Bible, assuming it was all true. Then when I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, something changed radically for me. I had the opportunity to study under Dr. Norman Geisler. Now, for those in your podcast who aren't familiar with that name, um, um, everyone pretty much has, uh, has heard about the inspiration of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, Dr. Geisler led the crusade to define what inerrancy meant. He was a part of editing all the papers that went into the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. So he is a heavy, heavy, heavyweight as it relates to the integrity of the Bible. But that very same gentleman, Dr. Norman Geisler, taught me in seminary what's generally referred to as the classical apologetic method or the classic apologetics. And in that method, it does not begin with the Bible's true, therefore we should believe. It begins in a completely different way. And so for a semester, line by line by line, he began with the statement, the laws of logic, um, the, laws, the laws of logic apply to reality. That was the first statement, the laws okay. of logic apply to reality. And line by line, thought by thought, built a case all the way to the resurrection of Jesus and consequently the authenticity and the reliability of the Old Testament. So the guy who believed and led the charge for inerrancy also taught me an approach to faith that did not begin with an inspired scripture, but actually ended with inspired scripture. So that approach became the framework for my preaching and teaching since I graduated from seminary, honestly, but mm. it wasn't all that important until recently. And so again, it was this nine or 10 years ago when I'm, I'm watching, you know, these lectures thinking, oh my gosh, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that that's just not going to wash anymore. So now's the time to kind of pull out <laughs> this different approach that honestly, I was trained in 30 something years ago, and it wasn't original with him. This goes back to Aquinas and, you know, way back. So again, I'm trying to take something very old, in fact, something older than the term inerrancy, older than um, inspiration, and bringing it back to the forefront. And it's the way of thinking that actually got us to where we are today. So I learned all of this from someone else. I've just tried to put some handles on it and make it easy for people to take advantage of. And my hope is that pastors, preachers, teachers, and Christian leaders would begin to leverage this approach, especially as it relates um, to the next generation. What's the advantage of this approach? And we're going to get it. We got lots of time. So we're going to get into very specifics about what this means, what's at the heart of the Christian faith, of, of the new covenant, the New Testament. Yep. But the question I guess I would have is, what is the advantage of Geisler's approach over, well, this is in the scripture, and so therefore, can you just help us unpack how that, because your fascination is also with skeptics. There are theological systems that are presuppositional. 
You know, the Bible is the Word of God. That's the starting point. And if a person wants to begin there, that's fine. That I, I'm not going to dispute that. But I would say to that person, what are you going to tell your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter, your great-grandson, your great-granddaughter when they come back and say, well, actually, the Bible has contradictions and errors. Does, is the conversation, does it go no further than, no, it doesn't? The Bible yeah. is the Word of God. Before I've read it, I, you know, I'm, it's, it's presuppositional. And if a person, if that's their theology, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not really concerned about them. I'm concerned about a different group of people that that presuppositional theology, especially. Um, I don't want to start dissing different theological systems, so I'll, I'll stop there. I'm just saying there is a better, older, more sequential, and more defensible approach to our faith, and so that's what irresistible is about. And again, um, I'm not. I'm really not trying to change what anyone believes. I am right. trying to get people to shift their approach to talking about the scripture and Christianity in particular. So you're in a debate with Sam Harris, <clears throat> theoretically, and he says, Andy, the Bible <laughs> is full of contradictions and errors. What yeah. do you say? Well, in in my book, I create Actually, I'm glad you asked this question. I, yeah. I create these two mock debates between Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins on one side and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter on the other. And the reason I create this debate is to make the point that their, their decision to follow Jesus has nothing to do with how the earth was formed. It has nothing to do with whether a man put two of every kind of animal in a boat. It has nothing to do with who wrote the book of Isaiah. It has nothing to do with is there any archaeological evidence for the Exodus. All those things are interesting and fun to talk about, and Christians have made case a case for years that those things are true. Um, skeptics and atheists have made case for years that those things are not true. But if we were to ask the apostle Peter, Peter, why is it that you chose to follow Jesus? Then, when he was arrested and crucified, you chose to unfollow Jesus, and then later chose to refollow Jesus. Why? Paul, why is it as a Pharisee, you are absolutely convinced that this knockoff Jewish cult called the way was a problem and had to be stamped out, and then later you decided to follow Jesus? What is the reason you gentlemen would give for your hope? And the reason they would give for their hope is one simple thing, the event of the resurrection. So to Sam Harris and to Richard Dawkins and the rest, I would say, look, you may be correct about most of what you say. I'm not following Jesus because of any of those things. Let, you know, you can have Genesis, Exodus, you can have the entire Old Testament, and you can have the last four books of the New Testament. All I need are two Gospels in 1 Corinthians to make a case for the fact that in the first century, in the first century, something extraordinary happened. That's undeniable. The church was born and should not have survived. That's undeniable. The Apostle Paul was a real historical figure. No one denies that. No one denies he wrote 1 Corinthians. No one denied he believed in the resurrection within a few years after the event. So if you give me enough time to build a case for the resurrection, game on. Because as I say all the time, if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we go with whatever that person says. So the essence of our argument is not, you know— how the world was formed. I mean, all those things are fun to talk about. Again, and, and smart Christians have different opinions. The S, the issue is, and C.S. Lewis said this a long time ago, the issue is, who is Jesus? And um, we don't, and, and Gary, you know, you know this when yeah. people say, well, wait a minute, Andy, the only things we know about Jesus are what we see in the Bible. No, that's not true. 
the Bible is a collection of ancient documents. The reason we know about Jesus is because a guy named Matthew told us, Mark told us, Luke told us, John told us, James, the brother of Jesus, told us, Peter told us, and Paul told us. So it is not one witness. It's not one book and one source. It is multiple sources that have been collected for convenience sake and bound together. Now, nothing I've just said is new or original, but I want the average thinking Christian to re-embrace those ideas as the foundation for why they believe what they believe. It is a more endurable faith because our faith is, in fact, robust and endurable. So I know you talk about this a bit in the book, but inerrancy and inspiration have come up a couple times so far in the conversation. Yeah. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Like when, yeah. when you think about that, is there, is there anything different here or like what, what are your thoughts on that? Our modern notion of inerrancy is a modern notion. And I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that this doesn't show up until way, way, way after even the Reformation that the, the issue for the um, early Christians, say first, second, third century Christians, the, the issue for them was not is scripture inspired. The issue for them is which of these documents is actually scripture. So right. because we're thinking sequentially, we have to take, keep in mind that our modern notion of what inspiration is and our modern notion of what inerrancy is are modern notions. And I'm not arguing they're incorrect. I'm just arguing they were added later. In fact, it can be argued that Christians made more progress and got more done between the resurrection and Constantine than they have ever since, which means hmm. Christianity progressed more and accomplished more before there was a the Bible than anything we've done afterwards. Because if you think about how small that community was, they were disenfranchised. They Again, they weren't educated. They had no leverage in culture. And yet not only did they survive, um, you know, over a third of the world's population claims to be some version of a Christian. So Christianity does not rise and fall on the Bible. The Bible was a fourth century invention, which I read every day. After the Bible was created, the, our modern notions of inspiration and, 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 and inerrancy. So I'm not discounting any of that. I just want thoughtful Christians to know our faith doesn't hinge on any of that. Right. That seems like such a radical notion to people who were raised in late 20th right. century, early 21st yeah. century, North American, Western Christianity. Because, because we're, not thought, we're not taught to think sequentially. Again, just yeah, like we right were back raised. to where we started. Here's the Bible. Here's the whole thing. Whole, and it is God's holy and errant word. Go for it. Which I, I did the same thing with my kids. I'm not arguing against yeah. that. I'm just saying as adults, we need an adult understanding and version of faith, and I'm trying to add to that conversation. You spend an awful lot of time, probably at least half the book, talking about Old Covenant, New Covenant, the yep. Old Testament versus the New Testament, and so on and so forth. And you you talk about the, the dangers of mixing old and new in the church today. Yep. Can you give us, first of all, tell us what that means, and secondly, yep. can you give us some examples of how we do that? The reason I even talk about that, that in the book is I realize that the argument I'm making, even as old as it is, is new to most Christians. So I spend a great deal, deal of time in the book uh, explaining to thoughtful Christians what the Old Testament is, again, within the context of sequencing in history, because at the, the end of my argument is simply that 
our New Testament faith, our Christian faith, can stand on its own two nail-scarred first-century resurrection feet, that we don't need the Old Testament to prop up the New Testament. In fact, in modern culture, the New Testament does better without the Old Testament, because when you listen to the new atheists and when you listen to skeptics, they start taking their shots not at the New Testament. They start with the Old Testament, assuming that as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. So in the book, I, I, I say, in the book, I said, look, next time somebody takes a shot at your faith based on something in the Old Testament, just shrug and go, yeah, that, it's interesting. Yeah, that, that is an odd story. Yeah, I don't know. But you need to know that has nothing to do with the foundation of my faith because the foundation of my faith isn't any of that. Now, I'm not discounting the importance of it. I'm just explaining the, the context. So to your question, as part of that broad discussion, I warn Christians about taking Old Covenant concepts. And when I say Old Covenant, I'm talking about the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, where we got the Ten Commandments plus the other 603 commandments, and importing not just the specific commandments, but the worldview and the value system of the Old Testament into our new covenant. They are two different covenants. One was temporary and with a nation. The other is with the world. And unfortunately, one of the things that makes us so resistible is any time we import old covenant ideas into our new covenant Christianity, it dilutes the message and it dilutes the effectiveness. Um, prosperity gospel is purely is rooted in the old covenant. Um, you know, there's a there's there's a move in the United States, Carrie, as you know, and I, I doubt this is true in Canada. That Christians want, you know, to put the Ten Commandments, keep the Ten Commandments in courthouses and keep yeah. the Ten Commandments on the front lawns of. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why, why would we do that? What What is that rooted in? Because the Ten Commandments were not given to us. The Ten Commandments were given to Israel. So there's I, and in the book, I, I talk about lots of this kind of mix and match covenant stuff that goes on. And again. It's easy to do because somebody handed us a Bible, said it's all God's word, go for it. And, you know, we just started looking for promises here and there and statements here and there. But the Old Covenant and the Old Testament context on, and value system is, 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 is not, it's so different than what Jesus introduced, so much so that, as you know, in the second century, there were theologians and one in particular who thought it was two different gods. And, and Christians today, when they read the Old Testament, they're like, well, you know, how do we reconcile these two? Well, in the book, I reconcile the two for Christians to say, you know what? In the Old Testament, which they didn't call it the Old Testament, we find God the founder. He was founding a nation. In the New Testament, Jesus invites us to call that same God, God the Father, because he's sent his Savior, the Savior for the world. So, you know, I try to, again, sequentially bring people through this storyline because it's an incredible, incredible story. And the Bible is a fabulous collection of inspired literature. Um, but if we're not careful, if we mix and match, um, again, we become more resistible than we need to be. How do you, I know you give some examples in the book and you talk about it, but like practically in church world, how do we mix the covenants? Like in, say, our teaching, in our preaching, is it yeah. selective grabbing of Old Testament laws and going, you know, no tattoos or yeah. we're not going to do, <laughs> you know, X, Y, Z. Right. You know, like just in a real practical way for uh, business leaders who, who are listening going, huh, how does, this, how does this play out in what I've been taught if I attend church? Well, um, I don't know the short answer to that question because I spend a lot of time in the book answering you that do. question. You do. The, but again, it goes back to 
how we under what we understand the Bible to be. And it's so interesting too, Carrie, because it, the Apostle Paul answers this question succinctly uh, in First Corinthians chapter ten. In First Corinthians chapter ten, in two verses, um, I think it's verse six and eleven, he says these things happened, talking about Old Testament narratives, and then he says these things were written down, talking about Old Testament narratives, as examples to us. So in that, those two verses, the Apostle Paul says, Christians, he was writing to Christians in Corinth, primarily Gentile Christians, saying, the way that you should leverage the story of Israel is this, Israel is an example to you of what to do and what not to do. But then in the book of Romans and Galatians and everywhere else, he says, but you are not under their law because you have a new law, the law of Christ even refers to it as the law of Christ. So the old covenants and the narratives associated with the old covenant, great examples, inspiration, um, you know, uh, God's faithfulness, God can be trusted, God keeps his promises. But in terms of specific application, all the New Testament applications are tied to Jesus' new covenant command, which was to love others as I have loved you. So that's a little bit of the distinction I talk about in the book. But unfortunately, most preachers and teachers ignore that distinction. And again, they mix and match and pull things from all over the place. You use the word in Irresistible, you use the word unhitch, which I've heard you preach through before as well, that Christians ought to <laughs> unhitch themselves. Yep. It created a bit of a stir on Twitter, if you remember yeah, that moment. Yeah. Do, do remember I remember that? those moments. <laughs> um, how Marcion was somebody, and I understand you even had yeah. a chapter that didn't end up, but how is what you're arguing different from Marcionism? Well, he believed there were two gods to begin with, so I'm not mm-hmm. polytheist. There's that. Um, I don't, there, again, when we look at God's activity, well, let's, let's start at the beginning. God yeah. appears to Abraham. There's, and if I, I wish that all Christians basically would hang the entire Bible on these three hooks. God makes a promise to Abraham. You're going to have a family that becomes a nation through the nation. I'm going to bless the whole world. And the story begins. Once then, once that family became a nation, God made a temporary arrangement with the nation. We call it the Sinai covenant or what happened at Mount Sinai. And then Jesus shows up. He ends that middle covenant, fulfills the first one, and the rest is history. So it's it's really that simple. So it's not two different gods, and God's not in conflict with himself. And as I said in the book, God didn't change his mind. In the New Testament, God is simply changing covenants. And again, Passover, you know, Jesus says to the guys in the room, they should have all gotten up and left. He said, this meal that you have celebrated since you were little boys, commemorating when God delivered your uh, forefathers out of slavery and brought them to Canaan, from now on, we're going to do this in remembrance, not of that, but in remembrance of me. Well, why would he do that? Because he was ending a covenant and fulfilling the covenant. That's his word. And he was inaugurating, as he said that night, a brand new covenant in his blood. So it was the closing the door on one and opening the door on the other. It was the end of a temporary and the beginning of an eternal covenant that was a fulfillment of an unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham. So essentially, that's our story, and that's the Bible. So there, there is no conflict. And again, when understood sequentially, it all makes fabulous sense. In fact, that's what makes the story so remarkable, that over yeah. the course of so many thousands of years— um, it's the, it's the story of our redemption. But now that we have been invited into the new covenant, we have no business dipping back into the old one. In fact, that's the book of Galatians. That's most of the book of Romans. That's what 
Paul went apoplectic about anytime somebody tried to bring the old into the new. He's like, wait a minute, the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is so extreme. If most evangelical pastors simply got up and put in through their own words what the author of Hebrews says about the Old Testament, they would be considered a heretic because mm. the author the author of Hebrews says the Old Covenant is obsolete. Jesus said it will soon or it will eventually disappear, which August the 6th, the year 70, it disappeared. The Roman soldiers, the 10th Legion, breached the walls of Jerusalem. The temple burned down, and ancient Judaism disappeared and was never resurrected. So, again, it's it's sequential. It's fabulous. It's amazing. It fits together. But we have better promises. We have a better covenant. Our covenant is the culmination and the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham all those years ago. Now, so how do you handle the Old Testament then? For example, for preachers— I think it was last year, the year before, you did a huge series on David's life called David. You preached on it recently. So it's not a question of never, ever go there, never, ever Mm -mm. preach it. So what what do you do with it? Like, how do you handle the Hebrew scriptures? You handle them. We handle them exactly like the Apostle Paul told us to. These are examples that we find principles, but not promises. We find principles, not practices. We find principles and examples of valor and courage and faithfulness to God, um, all of those things. But we don't transpose the law given to a nation into our New Testament context, even though obviously there's some repetition um, or obviously there are some similarities. But so it's really it's really pretty simple. And honestly, it's what most pastors do. I mean, you know, we teach the story of David and Goliath. The next thing you know, I'm David and my problem is Goliath. Eh, you yeah. know, I guess that's okay. Um, yeah. So so it's not, this is, I'm not suggesting anything new. I'm just warning that we look to the old covenant for inspiration and prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus, um, but that we let those promises and we let the, that covenant and that arrangement stay in its historical context. So, and also, I'm glad you brought this up. The whole unhitching thing is simply this. I was teaching, as you know, um, through Acts chapter 15, which I spend a great deal of time on in the book. In Acts chapter 15, you, you know, people may not like the word unhitch, you know, come up with your own word. But in Acts chapter 15, 20 years after the resurrection, the church is still trying to figure out what is our relationship with the law? What is our relationship with the old covenant? And finally, James, the brother of Jesus and Peter and the apostle Paul, you know, say, you know what? It's over. That wasn't for the Gentiles. That was for our ancestors. And it was it was difficult even for us who it was given to. So let's let the Gentiles be full on new covenant. And then us Jews, we'll sort out how much of the old and the new that we want to navigate through because it's part of our heritage. But let's let the Gentiles know it's a new day. It's a new covenant. It's a new command. It's a new promise. And let's set them up for success. So they unhitched Christianity from um you know, the Old Covenant. And, you know, I in the message series, I use the term Old Testament, Old Covenant interchangeably. That was probably a mistake because they aren't really the same thing. But anyway, mm. live and learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are we left with? Uh, and you, you spend the last part of the book sort of painting a whole new ancient future. Mm-hmm. Um, so as people of the resurrection, what do we have? Yeah, well, this is the fabulous part of our story, and it's the part that makes our message irresistible. Jesus established a brand new covenant, and every covenant, every ancient covenant, just like every modern contract, has terms and conditions. 
And that night when Jesus inaugurated his new covenant, he gave his followers the term singular and the condition singular. And this is what it was. And it's a verse most Christians have memorized, but unfortunately we lump it in with a lot of other verses. Jesus said, this new, I'm giving you a new command. Well, they didn't need a new one. They'd already had 613. He'd reduced them to two earlier. I give you a new command. And this new command was in, was given to replace all the other commands. And the new command was love one another as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And they thought they'd seen love. They hadn't seen anything. Hours later, they would watch a demonstration of love that would take their breath away. It would take Jesus' breath away. On the other side of the resurrection, he says, now, all authority has been given to me. Moses was your guy. I'm your new guy. All authority has been given to me. Now, I want you to go and teach everything I have commanded you. So what we have, Carrie, and the reason it's such a fabulous story is our our new covenant is far less complicated, but it is far more demanding. You cannot find a loophole when you only have one rule, and the rule is you are to love others as God in Christ has loved you. So the Apostle Paul comes along, and I, I make this case in the book. The Apostle Paul comes along, and all of the imperatives in his letters are nothing more than applications of Jesus' new covenant command. He's not coming up with new stuff for Christians to do. He's simply saying, Gentiles, this is what it looks like in marriage. This is what it looks like when you're raising your kids. This is what it looks like in the marketplace. This is what it looks like when you how you treat your slaves. This is what it looks like in terms of how you treat women. That all of his imperatives are simply applications of you are to love as I've loved. The easiest, uh, the, the clearest place, if, if a listener wants to check this out, is just read Ephesians chapter 5. It's yeah. Ephesians 5, and you'll see a bunch of specifics, but they're not tied to the Ten Commandments or the Old Covenant. They're tied to just as in Christ God has done for you, just as in Christ God has done for you. So our approach to life is so liberating. It's so positive. It is so others first, and there are no loopholes in this kind of love. Now, one more thing on this. When I talk about this, um, the feedback I get sometimes from skeptics skeptics is, Andy, you, that's just too loosey-goosey. Just love everybody. Yeah. We're just all supposed to be love, love, love. It's so I'm going, wait, wait, wait. You don't understand. Jesus didn't say, love the way you think you should love, and he didn't say, love the way you've been loved. He says, you are to take your cue from your Father in heaven as to how you are to love one another. And just remember, the ultimate expression of that love wasn't soft and compassionate and mushy. The ultimate expression of that love was our Savior covered in his own blood and body fluids dying for sinners. So there's nothing soft about this kind of love. It is compelling. It requires more than anything else we can imagine. And it's, it's, a, it's the type of love that captured the attention of the Roman Empire and ultimately changed the world. So in Irresistible, at the end of the day, I'm really inviting people to step into that and away from everything that makes the church and makes our faith unnecessarily resistible. Why do we miss this? Like, as I read through the book and I've listened to your teaching and anybody who's followed Andy's teaching even for a little bit, you're going to know the one another stuff. You've talked about this again and again and again and about love and the platinum rule and, and the whole deal. And it's very convicting. It's very transformative. But why do you think we have hung on to the old covenant, the mixing, the legalism, the Phariseeism? Why is that so appealing to Christians? 
Well, part of it is, again, the way the Bible was handed to us and explained to us as children, number one. Number two, the question, what does love require of me, is so compelling. It's terrifying. Yeah. Again, there are no loopholes. It's, it's much easier. a terrible easier. question, Andy. I'll it's, just be yeah, honest. it's much easier to have 10 rules and 12 rules and stipulations because give me five rules and I'll figure out a way to make them work to my advantage but it's going to cost you something. But if at every juncture and every relationship and every transaction, I'm to ask the question, okay, what does love require of me? It's so clear. It's so clear. Um, so I think part of the, re- and when that becomes the driving force of your life, Carrie, as you know, you lose control. I mean, we've never really had it, but at that point, suddenly your hands, you have to keep your hands wide open. Your possessions aren't your possessions. Your time's not your time. Your life is not your life. And Jesus says, exactly. That's it. <laughs> you know, have I, did I not model that for you? I mean, the last night with yeah. his disciples, he washes their feet. He says, I've done this as an example. And if you ever think you're a big shot, you just remember this night, the night that your rabbi washed your feet. And then of course, the next day they watch him die. Then they see the resurrected savior. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, this man washed my feet. And in that moment, they lost all their excuses. And in that moment, we lose all of ours as well. When you think about your life over the last, since you, you know, as you said, changed your teaching over the last nine years or so, or whatever it is. And as, you know, what does love require of me as that's become really one of the questions you ask over and over and over again, what has that changed in your life? What's different today? Um, well, this journey for me personally, and I tell this story in the book, actually, um, I, I was, oh, it is. Yeah. Chapter 20. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, because of the way I was brought up, um, I was very judgmental and I was very judgmental because I was a very good person. Um, the way I measured goodness. And I, I talk about this whole idea of vertical morality. And vertical morality is, as long as God's happy with me and I'm keeping God happy, things are good. I, As long as God's good with me, it doesn't matter if you're good with me. Um, and so I grew up thinking if I'm moral and I'm generous, then me and God are great. And I hope everybody can catch up with us someday. And I was really good at keeping all the rules. And there was an event in my life I talk about in the book where, I mean, and this was many years ago, God just got my attention and brought brought up all this crap that um, Judge, this very Pharisaic approach to Christianity that I had embraced and really had inherited from the system I grew up in. So that opened my eyes to the New Testament in a way that I'd never seen it before. Um, and of course, God continues to break a lot of that out of me. And every once in a while, Carrie, as you, and you know this, when you decide to follow Jesus, Not every day, not every week, not every month, maybe not every year, but every once in a while, there's that nudge toward one more step of selflessness, one more step of generosity, one more step of keeping those hands wide open. And that's part of the journey. But again, we follow a Savior who gave up his life, not just gave up his life, as the Apostle Paul says, who died, who took took his love to the point of dying, but not just any death, death on a cross. So again, in the shadow of the cross, we we lose our excuses and it creates the most compelling kind of life imaginable. The kind of life that even the greatest skeptic has to admire at the end of the day. Yeah, you um I think you hinted at this, you might have said it explicitly in the draft that I read, but 
in your early preaching, you said, I can't, I can't teach what I used to teach. And a lot of us have followed your teaching now for more than a decade. Is there anything, when you think back to the young Andy, whether that was student ministry with your dad or the early days of North Point, that, I mean, you're pretty famous for your principles. Is there anything when you're, you know, purity paves the way to intimacy? I don't know. That mm. one's been around for what? Student ministry days? It's been around yeah, a long yeah. time. Yeah. But are there, and, and I think that one holds water. But but are there any? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when you look back, Andy, are there any that you're like, yeah, I wouldn't teach that the same way anymore? Can you? And well, maybe there aren't. Yes. No. In terms of, I wouldn't teach that the same way anymore. Definitely. I don't know of anything that I taught that I wouldn't teach again. Um, of yeah. course, as you know, you once you get married, you learn a whole lot of things. Once you have your first kid, second kid, third kid, so yeah. insight. Um, has broadened his life experience has broadened. So, uh, but apart from just the immaturity of, Hey, I didn't know any better. I was 25. Other than that, the only major change is um, I, again, adopted the terminology that I'd grown up with. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, the word of God teaches. And so years ago, I quit using that terminology. I talk about this in deep and mm-hmm. wide and just began referring to the authors of the inspired text. As I say, an irresistible you know, this is going to get me in trouble. Technically, the Bible isn't inspired. In fact, the Apostle Paul says men were inspired. So what was inspired were the authors of the text and the actual text itself. The Bible is just a name given to a collection of these inspired texts. So the, that shift in terminology, I wish I'd made that earlier. But, you know, that was something I just, I just, just didn't seem important at the time because of the culture and because there was no internet. The only time people heard about the Bible was in church or maybe for 15 minutes in a college, you know, freshman college class or something. Again, all of that has changed. And uh, so consequently, I've shifted my approach and hope to lead a lot of other church leaders and thoughtful Christians to change theirs as well. It's hard. I mean, I've been trying to get rid of the Bible says, the Bible says, and it just flows out of your mouth, man. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and, And I want to be fair. I'm not saying that's bad, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying as we think about the next generation, there's a better yeah. way. Yeah. Well, and they've Googled everything, and they're, they're asking all kinds right. of questions. They, and, they and know so. what else the Bible says. That's the problem. They know what else the Bible says without ever opening an actual Bible. Yeah. Anything else behind the message of Irresistible that we haven't covered? I got a lot more questions, but I just want to make sure that we're fair to the message as, as you wrote it. Anything we've missed so far that you're like, oh, we got to talk about this? Well, um, practically speaking, one of the most important sections in the book as it relates to people who preach, teach, lead small groups, are in student ministry, middle school ministry, whatever it might be, is that the new covenant gives us a different answer or a new answer to the question, why? Why should I remain morally pure? Why should I tell the truth? Why, 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 why? And the old covenant answer is because the Bible says we should, or even because God says we should. The new covenant answer is because that's what most honors them. That's what's most honoring to them. And I am to honor others as God through Christ has honored me. Um, a, a simple ex- example of this in my family, when my kids were young and we were, you know, we only had two rules in our family. In fact, I, um, I would love to write another book called Irresistible Parenting because <laughs> we, we latched onto this early on. We had two rules, honor your mother and don't tell a lie. That was it. Honor mm-hmm. your mother and don't tell a lie. 
And the reason I gave my kids for not telling a lie had nothing to do with thou shalt not lie or the Bible says or God says. I said, the reason we don't lie is lying breaks a relationship. And I tied it back to the relationship. Why? Because relationships and honor are the essence of the New Testament first, you know, new command. You are to love others as I have loved you. So why would I want to dishonor someone that God loved so much and honored so much he sent his son to die for that person? Oh, well, that's different. So we tied every, all of our rules. We had, we tried to create a culture in our home of honor because honor is the essence of the new covenant, new command. So there, there are so many ramifications of this. It, it, it lands in so many different places. So the answer to the question, why, and I give several examples in the book, why should we do certain things? It all comes back to how does this behavior impact the other person for whom Christ died? And that's different than, well, Ephesians 4 says, and Genesis you know, 9 says, and Jesus said, and God said, it's okay, it's, it's clear, it's easier than that, it's simpler than that. So that's another big part of this book, and that's something I really hope Christian authors and speakers and teachers and preachers can again, begin to shape their communication toward, and no one's going to argue with that. I mean, yeah. I don't know how you'd argue with it. But again, as you said earlier, we we just have some bad habits in terms of how we talk about our faith. Um, and again, when you think about skeptics and non-Christians, I mean, in our culture now, everybody's all for everybody's rights. I mean, this this is a simple Christian message that actually originated with Jesus, I mean, you know, the whole idea that God is love, that's a uniquely and distinctly Christian message. So anyway. You're, um, you spend quite a bit of time in the book, and I know from your other teachings, talking about the decline of Christianity, the next generation walking away, etc. You also make the argument that you're pretty convinced it's because of this. Yeah. That, that they've been told the Bible says, the Bible says, they listen to Sam Harris, they listen to Dawkins, to Hitchens, and they're like, oh, well, I deconvert. You're fascinated by deconversion stories. Tell yeah. us what you're learning from them yeah. and how this, in your mind, helps. Yeah, I love deconversion stories, um, and I'm fascinated by them, whether they're books, blogs, rants, articles, you know, editorials, whatever it might be. And the interesting thing, Carrie, and you may take exception with this, but I've never heard a deconversion story that at the essence had anything to do with the essence of Christianity or who Jesus is. Um, people have had bad church experiences and left. Uh, people discovered that there were contradictions in the Bible and left. Uh, people were told things about the Bible. Uh, people basically just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and just did not want God consciousness to, you know, kind of ruin their party, ruin their fun. So they just decided God doesn't exist. There's all, I mean, there, and, and all of those are legitimate parts of people's stories. But None of that, and none of those, and there are dozens others of others, have anything to do with, is Jesus the Son of God, and did he demonstrate he was the Son of God by rising from the dead? That's really the only issue, because if he's not, then party on, and if he is, everybody needs to sit up straight and, and, and pay attention. So, um, again, this is why in the book I say we have made the church unnecessarily resistible, and we need to resist the things that make the church and make our message unnecessarily irresistible. And most of what makes us um, resistible are things we should be resisting because they're not core to our message, core to our, our belief system. So um, I love to hear those stories and love on the few opportunities I get. And I don't get many because, you know, people know I'm a pastor and they're kind of scared of me or they, you know, they're so diplomatic. But 
on those occasions when I can get a person to talk about why why aren't you engaged in the church anymore? What caused you to abandon faith? Honestly, it's never because I looked into it and I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. I don't believe he rose from the dead. I've never heard that story. It's always something kind of ancillary to to the essence of, you know, what we believe. So again, we have a, a fabulous story. And the clearer the story, the more compelling the story. We know from history, people want to think that there is a God in heaven who may relate to them as heavenly father. And people want to be in community where they are one another, where, they, you know, they forgive one another and are, uh, share one another's burdens. I mean, the, the call and the desire for community is, again, at the essence of what the church is about. So, um, it's just interesting and it's unfortunate and the church has some work to do, but we, we know that. So leaders listening have somebody in mind, relative, kid, parent, mm-hmm. um, cousin, neighbor, coworker, and they're like, Andy, you're describing this person. I want you to coach them on what that approach would be. Like, where do they start? Because they've had conversations, they're arguing about the violence in the Old Testament, they're arguing about right. whether the the Bible is accurate, or is, is what we're reading actually mm-hmm. even what was written, which, you know, is yeah. very answerable, actually. Here's, here's where we begin, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, all Pew, Barna, everybody says pretty much, at the end of the day, millennials specifically, everybody's picking on millennials, millennials yeah. specifically have left the church or are leaving the religion they grew up in because, bottom line, they don't believe it anymore. So the question, and I think the starting point for the conversation is, what specifically don't you believe anymore? And generally speaking, the first answer to that question is something that most thoughtful Christians would say, well, you know what? I don't believe that either. Or, you know what? You don't have to believe that to be a Jesus follower, because the issue is we want to invite you to follow Jesus. What is it you think you have to believe to follow Jesus. And you don't have to believe um, a six-day creation to follow Jesus. You don't have to believe in a worldwide flood to follow Jesus. There are a lot of things that you don't, if, again, these are things that were taught as, um, you know, belief critical or Christian critical in order to be a Christian. So I think it helps people to drill down to say, what exactly did you quit believing? And is that even, is it possible to not believe that and follow Jesus. Because as you've heard me say, I mean, it's the statement I'm just saying over and over these days, following Jesus will make your life better and it'll make you better at life. And I know you want to have a better life. And I know you want to be a better father and a better friend and a better boyfriend and following Jesus will make your life better. Why? I mean, yeah, we can talk about creation and archaeology and the book of Revelation. That's interesting. But tell me again now, why wouldn't you choose to follow Jesus? Well, I'm, I don't, even for the person who says, I don't believe he's the son of God, you say, well, you know what? Did you know that Jesus' first century followers didn't believe he was the son of God either at first, but he invited them to follow? So that's important and that's interesting, but let's set that aside. <laughs> Tell me again, why wouldn't you want to follow Jesus? So I think that is somewhat the starting place. We do not, and here's one of the things I say in the book, Carrie, we do not have to defend the Bible. We do not have to defend the Old Testament. Once you get into that spit and match, it is, you know, you're not going to win. Even if you win, you don't win. It's like having an argument with your wife. Do you ever really win an argument with your wife? No, no one wins. That's a good point. 
The, what we want to do is draw people into a conversation about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And would you take a step? And um, whatever reason you have for not following his first century followers, I mean, they all, after the, Jesus was arrested, they all unfollowed. So, hey, let's, I just think that follow term and the better life terminology is a starting point for the conversation. No, that's super helpful. So let's, let's take it a little further um, and imagine the friend who didn't grow up in church. And I know, you know, lots of listeners are in the Bible Belt, but I'm not. And you've got, your show does really well in Boston, your move. So I want yeah. you to think of Boston, New England, Seattle, California, you know, where maybe, maybe there's generations growing up who just their parents didn't go to church. They didn't walk away from anything because there was nothing to walk right. away from. And they are post-post-Christian or thoroughly postmodern. We're from dust. It's whatever. It's random. It's deterministic. It's fatalist. And we've been here for billions of years. When I cease to yep. exist, I'll cease to exist or I'll become one with the universe or whatever. How does this argument, how does this line of thinking engage people like that? Uh, that's a great question. And Again, we don't have to argue with, argue against any of what you just said to begin the conversation. I think right. the starting point for people is to say, would you be willing to read a first century document written by a person who investigated the events surrounding the life of Jesus? Like, what? Yeah. Would you be willing to read? It's written in the first century document surrounding the events associated with the life of Jesus. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. it's um, historically it's called Luke because Luke wrote it and he thoroughly investigated the events. Would you, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to read that, right? We're not asking people to read the Bible. We're asking them to read. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, 22 verses in it's Christmas in the book of Luke. So <laughs> I, I think, again, once we understand sequentially and once we think more sequentially and historically than we do theologically, why wouldn't someone be willing to do if somebody says, well, I don't believe the Bible. I'm not, oh, maybe I wasn't clear. I'm not asking you to read the Bible. I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm asking you to read. I mean, think of this. This was written in the first century. Really? Yes. So again, there are so many more on-ramps that are so less threatening that, again, we're not asking people to stop anything, start anything, or quit believing in science. I mean, I don't, I don't, mind that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. That doesn't rock my theology or that human race didn't show up till just 45 seconds ago on, you know, in the broad, none of that messes with my, I'm not a Christian because of Genesis. Neither was the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul. Yeah. We're Christians because of something that happened that was so well documented that it changed the world. So that's, that's the on-ramp with this new approach. How do you get through, and that, that's super helpful, how do you get through the supernatural part? I mean, you're, you're not yeah. very far into the Gospel of Luke, and there's right. miracles, and yep. uh, people with demon possession, and then there is that tomb at the end, and this guy, what, he was dead, and now he's alive. How, yep. would, you, how would you walk people through that? Because as I have conversation, as, as you do too, I'm sure, Andy, mm -hmm. people are like, well, I buy that Jesus was, a, we're right back to C.S. Lewis, I buy mm -hmm. that Jesus was a great moral, moral teacher, I think I can learn some things. I think enemy love is better than enemy hate. I agree. But that whole supernatural thing, and really, he rose from the dead. Like, come on, Andy, give me a, what do you, any coaching there? It's hard to get people even to that point in the conversation. But if they do, we actually have a great answer, thanks to science. Um, 
once Einstein admitted he was wrong, which I'm sure that was a big day, and acknowledged the fact that the universe is not static and that there was a singularity that we refer to as the Big Bang, here's what's indisputable. The laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, every natural law that we're aware of had a beginning. So something that was above nature, something we won't say supernatural, we'll say supranatural. We sure. know for a fact there was a supranatural event that created the laws of nature. So there has already been one supranatural event. Now the only thing there is to discuss is what was the source. But no one can argue there's not been a supernatural event because we know the laws of nature were created and either the laws of nature created themselves or they were created by something that was above nature, supranatural. So the category exists, just a matter of, you know, what do we put into that category? That's fascinating. Good answer. And right back to Aquinas, right? The primary yeah. mover. I mean, even pre-understanding right, right. all of that. Everything, everything yeah. that has a beginning had a cause. Not everything has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And we know the universe was caused. Oh, the, we know the universe had a beginning. So we can argue about what it was, but nobody can argue that it didn't have a cause. So Christians are just saying, we believe God and atheists believe it wasn't God, but hey, we don't have to. But but again, then we have to wrestle with what we find in the first century. So um, again, we just have a, a remarkable story in science underscores it does not undermine our faith hmm. okay while i got you i gotta i gotta ask you because you talk about this and i'm don't know whether this made the final edit or not but i've heard you say it, you know that people are walking away from faith and our answer is moving lights and skinny jeans uh, <laughs> <laughs> made me laugh that's out loud book. too that's that in is the in the book. book it made the final yeah. cut um and I think that's a really good point. And I mean, North Point, along with many, many other churches of leaders who are listening, what do we do? We do, you know, skinny jeans and moving lights. But Turn the music something up. that'll get them. Yeah. What What is your thought when you, when you think about the future and you look at the church and we see, you know, I don't know whether the attractional movement has peaked. Some would say it has, but clearly getting people into the building for most churches is not as easy as it used to be. I right. want you to, to just comment on what you're seeing, what you're sensing, and where you think all of this may be going in light of the ethic of love. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, um, getting people into any building is more difficult. Sports yeah. arenas, concerts, movies. I mean, everything's on demand at home. Everything's on demand on my phone. So, the phenomena of people not wanting to have a routine of having to go anywhere. I mean, you don't even have to go to school anymore. You don't have to go to university campus anymore. My my wife's in graduate school. She's been to one class, you know, and she's halfway through the program. So that that's not a church thing. That's just a thing thing. The question is, what do we do about it? And so the good news is people like yourself and our network of churches and Clay Scroggins, who your listeners, um, y'all know Clay, we're all working on that, and we're not yeah. abandoning church, and we're not abandoning faith, but it is going to look different, and it's going to – there's going to be different kinds of collections and different kinds of gatherings. Digital is here to stay, and digital is extremely important, and here we are. We're not even in the same country having yeah. this conversation, um, but I don't feel like I'm being cheated or robbed. In fact, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't get to talk to you very much. So yeah. 
Um, I'm not discouraged by any of that. That that actually makes community and and worldwide community more accessible and um, more possible. And people, as you know, they're they're digesting or they're getting their content in, in different ways. And Carrie, you've done an extraordinary job helping the rest of us uh, stay on the front lines and the cutting edge of our, our thinking and what's going on in other parts of culture as it relates to this very conversation. So um, it will look different. And I don't think for a minute I'm going to be the one that figures it out. But I've told our team who are younger than me, you know what, I'll help raise the money. You guys go figure it out. And and if we see somebody figure it out before we do, we're going to be early adopters because, again, we're, we think that when Jesus came into the world. He came for the whole world, for every generation, and we're responsible for the church and our generation. And uh, what a thrilling time to be a church leader and to have influence. So, it is going to change. I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I'm as hopeful and as optimistic um, as I've ever been. What are you changing in your preaching these days? I mean, a few years ago, you what was that? Five years ago, you introduced the TV, and now everybody's yeah, got a yeah. TV. Yeah, everybody's got <laughs> right. a television. Yeah, um, I've tried two things that didn't work. So um, I'm continuing one of my I, in my closet at home. I have I'm not much of a goal setter, but I have three or four things that I look at for the year. And um, one of them always has to do with my communication style. I'm never, ever, ever content. I'm tired of doing it the way I've been doing it. So I've tried some new tried some new things. They don't work that as well. Can you um, tell us what, what didn't work? people do. Uh, just the way we've used screens or um, LED panels, just some. Because I, I love, I want to draw people into the text. It's so funny. I'm criticized for not being expository. Gosh, I underline words. I creep through the text. I put it all back together at the end. I don't know how much more expository you can get. But anyway, I love the tool of being able to pull people into the verses and the scripture. Because, I mean, that's where the power is. That's, that's where the truth is. So um, I, I haven't found a better way to do that than to have that. Billy Plasma sitting up there with me, but you know, I'll keep doing that until somebody figures out something better, or perhaps I do. I like not having, I like being able to not have to use notes in a pulpit and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to get better. And my son, my oldest son, Andrew, does a ton of stand up comedy, and he has really challenged me, not because of what he said, but just watching him. I used to be very overt about trying to find a piece of what could be considered stand-up comedy in a message, not because I just want to get up and be funny, but if you're going to talk for 35 or 37 minutes, it has to be interesting and engaging, and humor is interesting and engaging. And watching him, it's just sort of, you know, prompted me, to, okay, Andy, don't don't just get buried in the text. Communicate. Remember who's on the other side of that camera and remember who's sitting out in the audience. So I'm constantly trying to get better. Hmm. What, 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 how has he coached you? How has Andrew well, coached you? No, he hasn't coached me. He's oh. just so good at it. It's challenged me to, I mean, because, you know, great comedians find humor in normal things. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's the kind of comedian he is. He's very introverted and he just stands there and talks about normal things. And it's funny, like good comedians. And I'm like, you know what? I, I get up but every week. But that's your style. I mean, you've been doing well, that for years. Yeah, I, I want to get better at that. And, and, and <laughs> oh, it just so takes I. some intentionality. And the more intentional yeah. you are, the more um, in the moment it actually looks. That's the right. great thing about a comedian. They look like they're just talking off the top of their head. It's all scripted. But anyway, I... So it's like I, Andrew, I just, John Acuff. Every time I'm in the room with John Acuff, I'm like, man, yeah. you're just tripping over that stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It well, creates some I, envy in me. I got to reread Enemies of the Heart. It's like, yeah. no, here we go. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't. Yeah. Well, Read can't through number 18, absolutely. Andy. Thank you. Yeah. That, by yeah. the way, that's one of my favorite books of yours, Enemies of the Heart. Oh, uh, and a uh, uh, question for you, because, I mean, as you've shared this material over the last few years, there has been, shall we say, a little bit of controversy and some criticism. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How, what are you learning from your critics? And how do you handle that level of criticism? And just like, no, I'm going to keep writing, keep putting books out. Well, I tried, you answered one of the questions. I think there's always something to be learned from criticism. And generally for me, um, where the, the takeaway that I, what I take away from the criticism is oftentimes my um, inability or my um, lack of clarity. I don't, I don't mind being criticized for something I actually said or actually mean. Um, and some people are just looking for something to criticize no matter what I said or meant. But there have been times when I just wasn't clear. Um, mm-hmm. And as you know, I, you know, a few years ago, I said something unintentionally or came across unintentionally that I was being critical of small churches, which is crazy because yeah. we plant small churches all the time. But mm-hmm. after I listened to it, I thought, you know what, for somebody in internet world, I, I understand. So the next Sunday, I got up and said to all of our campuses online, I apologize. I said, I am so sorry. Now, the funny thing was the people sitting in our churches had no idea what I was talking about because they didn't, they weren't offended by it. But I, I understood my lack of clarity and that's on me. So I'm pretty good at apologizing. I've had lots of experience, unfortunately. So <laughs> there's, there's always something to learn. Again, that Sam Harris quote, we should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. You know, that's, that's the only way to learn. So, But does it eat at you? I mean, you talk to most people, they get yes, criticized. What, what eats at me, and this is maybe hard to believe, but I, I promise, what eats at me is that Christians are so insider-focused and are so not curious and, are, and have such little trust. So here I've preached for 30-something years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and, and Christians, especially kind of famous or not famous, but, you know, professors, smart, educated Christians who've never, ever once commented positively on my other 500 messages, church planting, leadership development. It goes on and on and on. These cool things I've had a part of. And then I say one thing that they don't like, and it's kind of like, aha, we knew it. And then they, you know, build entire blogs and articles around you know, a statement or a misstatement. And I, it's so disappointing. I'm like, I'm like, I, what? We're, I mean, Jesus covered that. I mean, this is, this is kind of based, this isn't just Christianity 101. This is like gentleman 101. This is, mm. this is journalism 101. Um, so I'm constantly disappointed at the lack of, um, I don't know, ethics sometimes, or just kindness among Christians. That's, I don't, I don't take it personally. I really don't. I just think, wow, that person who doesn't know me, who could have gotten in touch with me, wrote an article about something I said and never contacted me. That's just weird because I would never do that. You would never do that. I mean, no, I wouldn't ever say anything about you without or, talking no, to you. No, I mean, first. about anybody. I, yeah, no. In fact, when, I, I oftentimes um, call these people, I try to get in touch with them, and they're shocked and they're embarrassed, usually. And, um, you know, we'll talk. And at the end, I always, this is my dig. I say, I just want you to know, I'll never say anything publicly about you until I talk to you first. Mm. In, in, insinuating, and you should <laughs> you should return yeah. the favor. 
but they don't. It's like, well, you made a public statement and we're trying to hold you accountable. And I'm like, well, just call me. I mean, if you genuinely care, just I'm, I'm very easy to, to get anyway. So and, and in some cases, people have retracted statements and apologized. But mostly it's just disappointing that the Christian community, with all that we have to do in the world, goes off. I, I, I don't understand it, Carrie. Yeah. It's just shocking. I get it, Andy, and I, I empathize. I mean, we're connected enough in our world that sometimes I see the stress that that causes your office, you, your family. It work for my office. That's the oh, problem. Yeah. It, it, the stress on me is just kind of like, oh, well, whatever. I'll call them and, you know, tell them to call me next time. But again, they blow things up out of context. And then we start getting phone calls and email and my assistant, you know, I, huh. that's not what we do. I, I haven't, I've not ever hired anyone to be my PR, defend Andy. We have very important things to do as a local church, so it, it does waste a lot of our time. And there, Andy, you're speaking the universal love language of every, not love language, but it's the universal language of every leader. There's not a single person listening to this podcast, and maybe it's not an article or you know a Twitter scandal, but there's someone at their church going, you know, when you said this, and they're talking to their 18 friends, and you got a church of 100, and now you got 18% of your church that doesn't like you or whatever. So can you just, because you do this really well, can you walk us through the self-talk that you do <laughs> when that happens? Yes. Like, it's got to be hard. Well, I do. I say, okay, where what is legitimate about these complaints? Even if they have horrible motives, and of course, I don't know what anybody's motive is, what, you know, what could I have done better? Or what could I do different? And and um, if it's Twitter, I try to, to direct message people and apologize or get clarity. Um, or I'll even say to people, hey, follow me. I'll follow you back. And uh, that's the other thing that's so interesting. My critics, except for one person, none of them follow me on social media. So I can't even <laughs> respond directly to them. It's, it's crazy. It's like, we're going to write an article about you, but I'm going to give you no way to actually respond directly to me. And the people who've been most critical of me in the past, I follow all of them on Twitter. Yeah. I, I, because I like talking about difficult things and the only way to learn is to talk about it. So the first of all, you know, you ask, Hey, what, what can I learn from this? And then the quicker you can get face to face or phone to phone with those people, the better I've learned. Just, mm -hmm. just reach out because they don't expect that. And again, you're not trying to get, make a, we are trying to make a point. It's like, Hey, Let's talk. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a picture on a brochure. I'm an actual person with an actual voice, with children and a wife, and you know, struggles and you know, we. So I just think the direct, you know, the the direct communication. The quicker you can do that, um, the better. And and anyone who is avoiding that, then they have to some extent exposed their motives. So mm, that's so good. So Andy, I, I want to wrap up by asking you. The book is coming out today. It's going to yep. fall into a lot of hands, and it's a message. It's a, it's a, like honestly, just reading it myself. I'm like, wow, I've, I've got a lot to learn. It really, you know, when you get, you get around the block, you read stuff, you go, yeah, 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 I know that. You're like, oh, yeah, Andy, yeah. wow, this is, this is fresh. This is new. This is different. I'm still processing it. What's your greatest hope? What is your greatest oh, hope yeah. for the message of Irresistible? I'd love to. Know. I, oh, I'm so glad you asked that. And and this sounds, I don't think this will happen. So don't, I don't want anybody to hear me thinking I have so much influence and I'm so important. I'm going to be able to, you know, move the needle on the dial. I, I don't believe that about myself. 
but I felt like I could not not write this book. So maybe this, along with a lot of other things and a lot of other voices, but to answer your question, I would love for Christians and for church leaders and thoughtful Christians to fully embrace the extraordinary message that God sent his son into this world for the entire world. And he punctuated that event with the resurrection of Jesus and that our faith hinges and hangs on that one event. The apostle Paul could not have been clearer. He said, and he did not say this about anything else. Think about this. He said, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection of the dead, your faith is useless, period. He did not say that about anything else. How much clearer could he be? The entire thing rises and falls, not on a text. It rises and falls on an event. And we don't know about the resurrection because of the Bible. We know about the resurrection because Matthew told us about it. Mark, who got his information from Peter, told us about it. Peter mentions it. Luke mentions it. I thoroughly investigated things. John's an eyewitness. And then James, you've heard me say this a hundred times. James, the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, believed his brother was his Lord. We should all sit up straight and say, what? And then the apostle Paul, who hated Christians within three years of the resurrection, becomes the most avid church planner in the history of uh, the, you know, uh, of the world, really, in terms of the struggles he had and what he had to do to create a church. So that's our story. It, it all rises and falls right there in that those few years surrounding this extraordinary event. And I would love to think that the next generation's faith hangs there as opposed to feeling like they have to defend the entire Bible or that as the Bible goes, so goes their faith. That's the hope uh, for this book. Andy, I really appreciate it. You've opened not just your mind, but I feel like you've really opened your heart today. And you've done that in the pages of Irresistible. And and thanks for just being vulnerable and open with leaders. You know, it's not an easy journey every day, is it? Uh, Not every day. But you know what? Think about what we get to do and what so. Oh, yeah. It's just... I, I, we're, we all feel so privileged to do this. So thank you for the opportunity, Carrie. Thanks for your friendship and your partnership all these years. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Andy, um, what's the website? Is it just andystanley.com to find out more about Irresistible? It's available absolutely everywhere. It's, and, yeah, just really just if you Google Ir- Irresistible in my name, you'll find it somewhere where, where your books, what is it? Something books are sold. Where, uh, <laughs> wherever anyway, books where, are where, sold. Wherever that's it, wherever books. Wherever books are sold, and um, I, I did the the other thing is I did the uh, I've never done this except once. I actually read the book for the Audible account. I hate doing that, but I wanted people to hear this book in my voice. So if for those of you oh, who good. don't like to read books, um, you'll actually Glad. hear my. That's voice hard, isn't it? I just did my book. Like, yeah, it's I love. Maybe doing it was it. easy like for was, you. Was it easy? Well, for you? I felt like I was preaching the book, which honestly I yeah. loved because I'm I'm passionate about this content. So I had an editor who kept correcting me. It's like, you have to read what you wrote. I'm like, I don't want to read what I wrote. Yeah, I anyway. didn't stick with the script. I, I, uh, there's some extra commentary on the Audible version, yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Well, that's good to know. Hey, and Deep and Wide Tour, before we go, do you want to talk about that? I think we're in California the week this comes out, the week of the book. Yep. Yeah, I'm in seven cities uh, this fall. And if you go to uh, deepandwidetour.com, deepandwidetour.com, you can find all the cities, all the times and locations. It's a ticketed event. But I'm going to be teaching from the content of the book. Plus, uh, the first session and a half is not in the book. So I'm super excited about oh, some additional good. content. Yeah. And uh, last year, as you know, we had great success. And um, so I'm looking forward to going out, back out on and the road. And it's all new content, the correct? Message. Yeah. Same yeah, name, but all new content. Yep. That'll be yep. great. 
Well, um, I hope it works out that uh, people can get to that. Andy, thank you so much. Look forward to our next time together. Oh, man. I just uh, really appreciate what Andy said at the end, too, where, you know, sometimes we do complain a lot in ministry, and he's like, Carrie, come on. Can you believe we get to get up every day and do this? Andy, point well taken. Man, what a privilege it is to be able to do the things that we get to do in leadership, to play a little role in a big kingdom. Great perspective. And you guys are going to want to get more. So head on over to the show notes. You can find them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 217. And if you can't spell that, don't worry. Go to leadlikeneverbefore.com, Google Andy's name, and it will come up, or episode 217. You'll find it there. And guess what? In the show notes, we have the link to the missing chapter from Irresistible. Yeah, we'll give you one of the chapters that's cut out. So the link is there in the show notes, along with everything else that we covered in this episode. Remember, if you haven't picked up a copy of Andy's book, it is out today. Make sure you do that. And I'm not trying to break your book budget. (laughs) Some of you joke about that sometimes. Uh, But uh, I'll tell you, I'm so excited about the response to Didn't See It Coming as well. And remember, if you haven't picked up a copy of that yet, um, do that this week. Go to an old school bricks and mortar bookstore and take a picture of yourself with the book and use the hashtag didn't see it coming book. Just didn't see it coming book. Use that hashtag uh, pretty much every day, sometimes twice a day. We're going to be awarding randomly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram uh, people with $25 Starbucks gift cards. So thank you to all of you who are going to do that this week. Next week, we're back with a fresh contest. And this is for all of you who have the book. So hang on, you're all included. Okay, we got more Starbucks to give away. We also have a brand new episode. Francis Chan is on the podcast. And Francis joins us in a, a really powerful and personal interview about why he left his mega church what he learned when he went on sojourns, kind of in you know exile into Asia, how he came back, what he's been doing in San Francisco, and his battle with pride and fame. It's a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. And I was like the young guy, and oh, we're going to let this guy come and speak. And, and then I remember like the last night they would have like this victory circle campfire okay. where they would share testimony. And... I didn't have to be there, but I remember leaving my cabin and going to Victory Circle because I wanted to hear the kids say my name. Oh, wow. I wanted to just hear, gosh, I feel sick even saying this. I mean, that's that's what it came down to. I wanted yeah. to hear someone say, the speaker was so funny. And then he said this. And so I gave my life to Jesus. Yeah, it starts with that. That sense of, whoa, people are starting to know my name. So that's next week here on the podcast. Hey, you know that subscribing is free, right? So whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get them, absolutely free. Just hit the subscribe button. You will get this stuff automatically. And hey, earlier this month, we gave you what? Four extra bonus episodes? Yeah, some of those were gold. Erwin McManus, Levi and Jenny Lusco. Uh, I gave you an inside look at a book launch. I don't know whether that one was gold, but the other ones were. And uh, you get it all for free. We got some great guests coming up too. Scott Harrison from Charity Water, Rachel Cruz, Max Lucado, Patrick Lencioni, Levi Lusco is back. 
Larry Osborne, and so many more. I think you're going to have a great time over this fall. Hey, if this podcast has meant something to you, can you leave a rating and review on iTunes? We are pushing over, I think, 750 right now on the US iTunes store. So thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. I read every single one of them. And don't forget to go over and check out trainedup.church. They've added some brand new features, 90 day money back guarantee, free coaching at every level, 10% off for life. Trainedup.church to train your church, get them on board with mission, vision, safety, training. Use the coupon code CAREY, you get 10% off for life, C-A-R-E-Y on checkout. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I, I know you will have found this episode, fascinating. Andy is always fascinating and, and, and so generous with his time today. So thank you, Andy, once again. Make sure you go pick up his new book, Irresistible. And we're back next week with a fresh episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.